physics world. If someone tells you you're comparing apples and oranges, they mean you're comparing two things that are totally different. Apples are apples, oranges are oranges, and never the two shall meet, or, or something like that. But physically speaking, apples and oranges really aren't that different. They're basically just nutritious blobs of sugar and water. So why do they smell so different? I'm Margaret Harris, Physics World's Reviews Editor, and in this edition of the Physics World podcast, we'll be learning about smell from a pair of researchers who are as different as apples and oranges. One of them is John Joe McFadden, a molecular geneticist. The other is Jim Al-Khalili, a nuclear physicist. What links these two people is their interest in quantum biology, a new and growing field that's all about looking for quantum effects in biological systems. Biological systems like the human nose. To learn more about quantum biology and what it could tell us about our sense of smell, I went to visit Al-Khalili and McFadden at the University of Surrey, where they both work. On my way there, I picked up some crucial interviewing supplies, an orange and an apple. John, Joe, if I could pass you this uh, pocket knife and you could you know, sort of cut into the, okay. the orange. Mm-hmm. If you could describe to me what's happening what you, when you smell the, the scent okay. of that orange. Okay, so um, smell, uh, lovely orangey smell. And that comes from a molecule called limonene, which is a small uh, organic molecule which uh, is present in uh, citrus fruits. And it, uh, when I cut into the orange, it's floating out of the uh, fruit uh, into the air. And when I breathe in, particularly through my nose, those limonene molecules are captured by cells in the upper part of our nose called olfactory receptors. So olfact- the job of olfactory receptors is to capture the odorants that are floating through our nose and identify them. So how that is done has always been a bit of a mystery. Okay, so I'm going to now give the knife and an apple, as it is, mm-hmm. to, to Jim. And perhaps you could describe the differences between what you smell in the orange and what you smell in the apple. Yes, uh, it turns out, one thing we do know is that these receptor molecules in our nose all have a particular job. Each one recognises a particular scent molecule. So I recognise the smell of the apple, I recognise the smell of orange, and we recognise a thousand other different scents because certain receptor molecules are structured in a very special way to capture only one particular scent molecule. And the big mystery was, how is it that that these receptor molecules recognise different shape molecules? Some are actually very similar in shape and size and and structure. Al Khalili went on to explain that according to the standard theory, it's the shape of the molecule that dictates what it smells like. The idea is that a particular scent will only be captured by a receptor that has the right shape, like a key fitting into a lock. It's a good theory, but it does have some weaknesses. Many molecules that are shaped completely differently smell exactly the same. For example, if a molecule has hydrogen sulfide in it, it's probably going to smell like rotten eggs, no matter what its structure looks like. That, McFadden told me, suggests that a different theory is needed. In the early part of the 20th century, a chemist, Malcolm Dyson, came up with an alternative idea, and that is that olfactory receptors don't necessarily detect shape, uh, but they detect the vibration of bonds, of chemical bonds. And that makes kind of sense because the hydrogen-sulfur bond has a certain vibration, and if that is detected, then that would account for why uh, sulfurous compounds stink. 
But there's a problem with the idea that smell is all about distinguishing between vibrations of chemical bonds. The molecule that makes oranges smell like oranges is called limonene, and it has a chemical twin called dipentene. Limonene and dipentene are mirror images of each other. They're like the right hand and the left hand of a pair of gloves. They contain exactly the same atoms and exactly the same bonds, so their vibration frequencies are the same too. But whereas limonene smells like oranges, dipentene smells like turpentine. And that's a real problem for the vibration theory. It's possible that the receptors in our noses use a combination of shape and vibration to distinguish between scent molecules. But while the mechanism for shape detection is pretty straightforward, the molecule either fits or it doesn't, until a few years ago, nobody had any idea how the nose could distinguish between the vibration frequencies of chemical bonds. That's where quantum mechanics comes in. In the mid-1990s, a researcher called Luca Turin pointed out that when a scent molecule arrives at a receptor, its bonds will be vibrating at a certain frequency. He suggested that if this frequency is just right, an electron will be able to quantum tunnel from one part of the receptor to the other, causing the olfactory neuron to fire and send a message to the brain saying, orange, or maybe apple. Here's Jim Al-Khalili to explain. The basic idea is something called inelastic electron tunneling. So an electron can jump from one place to another or quantum tunnel from one place to another only if there's a, a space for it on the other side of the barrier, uh, an atom that has an empty energy level for the electron to occupy. And so if this electron has too much energy before it's quantum tunneled, then there is no place for it. It has to dump its excess energy in order to tunnel. And that's what these scent molecules do if they have the right vibrational frequency. That means they are amenable to allowing the electron to dump a specific amount of energy into the molecule, exciting the molecule up to a high energy level. The electron then has exactly the right energy to land on the other side of the barrier, allowing the electron to tunnel. To test this theory, Turin and others replaced the normal hydrogen atoms in a scent molecule with a heavier isotope of hydrogen, deuterium. Substituting deuterium for hydrogen doesn't change the molecule's shape, but it does change the vibration frequency of its bonds. Deuterium is more massive, so it doesn't vibrate as quickly. But does a deuterated molecule smell different from one that contains normal hydrogen? Tests on animals and humans suggest that the answer is yes, although Al-Khalili says that more evidence is still needed to prove that quantum tunneling is the reason why. The jury is still out on quantum effects in some other biological systems, too. One of the hottest topics in quantum biology concerns a possible role for quantum effects in photosynthesis. This is the process by which plant cells capture light energy from photons and convert it into chemical energy. Here's John John McFadden. So the first step is a transport, capture the photon uh, energy transported to another place. The efficiency of that transport has always been a puzzle because it's as close to 100% as you can measure in optimal conditions. And uh, why it should be so efficient was a puzzle because the mechanism for the transfer of the energy, the energy is converted to an exciton, which is a, an electronic vibration, and basically that then jumps between different chlorophyll molecules in a kind of forest of chlorophyll molecules. And in this forest, this exciton should mostly get lost 
and it should emit the photon again as a, uh, as a photon of light, the energy as a photon of light, or as heat. So it really shouldn't be so efficient, and yet it has this extraordinarily high level of efficiency. Experiments carried out in the mid-2000s suggested that the efficiency of photosynthesis might be due to the exciton not traveling like a classical particle hopping from one place to another. Instead, the exciton might be going through the entire forest of chlorophyll molecules simultaneously, following multiple pathways at once. In other words, it might behave like a quantum wave. Exactly how it does this in the warm, messy interior of a plant cell isn't understood, and some more recent research has hinted that quantum effects might not be required after all to explain the amazing efficiency of photosynthesis. As I said, it's a hot topic. Jim Al-Khalili and John Joe McFadden have their own research program on the role of quantum mechanics in genetic mutations, but they've also written a popular science book about quantum biology as a whole. The book is called Life on the Edge, The Coming of Age of Quantum Biology. And before I left Jim and John Joe to eat their apple and orange in peace, I asked them what it had been like to write it. Well, um, I have come to realise as I've sort of looking at the subject that biochemistry is the hardest science ever, anywhere. <laughs> because there are levels of complexity and, and it's uh, once you, you, you delve inside the living cell... John Joe spent his career looking into the cells. I, I'm coming this uh, afresh, as it were. And you see that mechanisms are built on other mechanisms, and you dig down and you see that you know there, are, there isn't a single mechanism that we can say, this is where the quantum mechanics ensures that life is different from, from inanimate matter. I think uh, what's hard for... Uh, it's probably different things. Jim, as he said, found biochemistry hard, whereas I've been brought up on it. And for me, the mathematics is hard. For me, uh, and, and this, I think, is, is the fundamental problem with communicating between physicists and biologists. And most biologists have gone into biology because they find the mathematics hard. And then you have to communicate with someone who understands something by writing an equation. And that's understanding it is, is in the equation. And I've had that many times talking to physics. Oh, well, this is how it works. And then they write an equation. It doesn't mean anything to a biologist. We, we work with pictures. But also, uh, you know, one of the advantages where you get different insights into problems that you don't really have coming from another direction. So Jim can provide a, a different viewpoint, which is, can be very productive to have these insights. A review of Life on the Edge will appear in the April 2015 issue of Physics World. If you're a member of the Institute of Physics, IOP, you can read it in digital form via myiop.org or using the Physics World app. If you're not a member of the IOP, you'll find more details about membership on our website, physicsworld.com. Thanks for listening. Physics World.